This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan, and that, of course, means you're listening to another episode of the Crowncast, and I did a cold open. I love cold opens. I've wanted to do a cold open on the Crowncast for so long, and I think I've done, like, one total. Uh, so, you know, we're here today to do a little bit of celebration, have a little bit of fun, uh, obviously talk about the fact that now Charlotte FC is definitely going to not only make the playoffs, but then win them. And uh, here to do cold opens and also be ridiculous with me is Ewan. Hello, Ewan. Hello. Yeah, I was muted for the cold open just so I didn't ruin it because I think you could probably <laughs> tell I was uh, I was having a bit of a laugh here. So, uh, yeah, lovely stuff. <laughs> lovely to I... be here. I appreciate having you, buddy. Um, sadly, no Josh for this episode. Uh, he went to the doctor recently and came back and wasn't wasn't quite ready to be on microphone. So if you want to wish Josh the best, please go to the Twitter. Uh, wish him all the best health, all that good stuff, all the love. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. Uh, we are going to be talking to you today, though, basically on the fact that Charlotte FC has kind of fallen into a place where the stars have aligned. Uh, and... Really, playoffs is now back on the table. You know, we talked about it previously that it doesn't actually take that much for Charlotte FC to make playoffs now. I feel like it went from you have to, a lot of things have to align to now kind of a coin flip. Ewan, would you say a coin flip is too generous? Would you say it's not generous enough? Are Charlotte FC definitely in? Well, where where are you sitting on this? Yeah, I mean, a lot hangs on whether which version of Miami we get mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's the truth of it um but i think a coin flip might be a little bit harsh because i'm looking at the other teams i'm looking at the fact that a couple of teams have to play each other who are in the running as well and obviously mm-hmm. can't get maximum points out of that and i out of the teams that we're competing with i don't know if i trade places with any of them and off yeah. the virtue of that i feel like yeah we're probably a little bit better than coin flip Give me, uh, give me your your numbers. Forty, sixty, thirty, seventy. Yeah, I mean, I, as soon as I said maybe better than a coin flip, I remembered what team I was talking about and how Jekyll and Hyde they could be. <laughs> so maybe coin flip is fair because I don't want to go any further than maybe fifty-five, forty-five. Um, so hey, that is better than a coin flip. <laughs> well, there you go. You do I'll, mean I'll... that Charlotte FC gets the fifty-five? Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll probably stick with that. I'll say fifty-five. I'll say a coin flip. Uh, a little bit better than a coin flip. So today, yeah, I'm, today I'm on comfortable the, with that. Today on the Crowncast, Ewan <laughs> is technically correct, the best type of correct. <laughs> and uh, uh, now, now that we've gotten into, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about like the penal the the penalties. We'll, we will talk about that later. We'll talk a little bit more about the playoffs and and things like that, and how we are definitely going to win them. Uh, but first, we are going to talk about Chicago. And he's not on the microphone for me to praise him. Uh, but I, I do actually have it recorded that Josh does not like getting praised. So I'm going to do it anyway. Before we played Chicago, he came out with, with his preview and he said, this is, this is the Spider-Man meme online of all the different Spider-Men like pointing at each other like, you're me. I'm you. What? And, and that's what it was. Charlotte FC versus Chicago Fire was was two incredibly similar teams <laughs> and two not great teams. It's probably fair to say 
that just happened to meet each other in a dark alley and Charlotte FC walked out the victor. Like Charlotte FC got, got the punches. I want to talk about Ashley Westwood because we do have a game that, you know, if you look at the XG on this one, it's like 1.17 to 1.04. Like it's almost dead equal. I think this gives us a chance to zoom in on Ashley Westwood who not only has that amazing strike uh, to open up the scoring in this, and I think, you know, I, I think that wins the game, but it gives us a chance to talk what he's actually doing in the system, wh- how he has transitioned from that eight into that six, and why he has become sort of the beating heart of the team. So uh, I'm going to start by saying, Ewan, best volley you've seen in 2023. <laughs> Well, it's definitely the most important one I've seen in terms of uh, my happiness. So I'm happy to, uh, <laughs> to to put it up on that pedestal. Yeah, I mean, I, I we obviously did the post-react together and I brought in the idea of the deflection maybe being a bit favourable and you were rightly shutting me down for that because it's a hell of a strike and, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's probably going in regardless. So, yeah, I, I'm happy to put it on that pedestal. It is a really... It is a really, really sweet strike from what you mentioned at the time is a really hard ball to hit with the way it's coming down. So it deserves all the praise. So I watched this one back. I assume you watched it back as well. Just Uh, a few hundred times. (laughs) (laughs) I I watched this back. I watched the whole game back, but you're right. I definitely rewatched that point many times. The, The how clean it is how smoothly the mechanics, the biomechanics of Ashley Westwood's body are to make that happen. Like you cannot overstate how challenging that is and how easy he makes it look. One of the things that you talk about with professional athletes is they make really hard stuff look really easy. If you watch a, uh, you watch someone who plays professional baseball, pick up the ball and throw it from third base to first base yeah, they look, they're throwing the ball kind of hard, but they don't look like they're working that hard. They just sort of throw it, and, and it goes a distance that n- most normal human beings cannot get a baseball to travel at all. And Ashley Westwood just sort of watches that ball fall out of the sky and then puts his laces through it, and, and it was really that simple. He made it look that simple. So I, I enjoyed the moment. Uh, anything else on the goal you want to talk about, Ashley Westwood? Um, I mean, I'll say as a as a Baltimore Orioles fan that uh, baseball references should be banned for the uh, for the foreseeable. But outside of that, <laughs> outside of that, yeah, you're absolutely uh, absolutely spot on in terms of the fact that even though there is a deflection and it's probably going in otherwise, the the fact that you can hit it without much sweetness and create a bit of jeopardy for a defender to think that they do need to get in the way of it that deserves credit in of itself because the reality with hitting a ball like that is that half the time that ball actually ends up behind you because you, you your, your leg comes through quicker than you think the ball is coming down. You end up swiping it with the top of your, of your foot and it just ends up slicing behind you. Mm-hmm. It's such, it, it's such a hard technique and it's no surprise that someone like Ashley Westwood is the person who was able to pull it off. So even in a game where his actual role in terms of general play was so brilliant in, in the way he was able to 
in what is a fairly new system, not a massive departure from what we've done before, but a fairly new system, a little tweak in there, which changed his role a little bit, that within all the good stuff he did there, he was able to have a moment as brilliant as that. It's pretty fitting. Like Probably the best player on the field got the opportunity to have the best moment, and, and that's always cool when that can happen. Yep. It's nice when the universe aligns. I want to talk about Ashley Westwood in a paving the future way. Ashley Westwood, you know, he came into this club. He was playing an eight. Obviously, he's since sort of transitioned into that six role where he's got a little bit more defensive responsibility. He's a little bit more required to to be the the maestro, the orchestrator of the team going forward. But it also gives him more defensive responsibilities. I like that they've chosen Ashley Wood, Ashley Westwood for that position. I like the idea behind it. You know, if you if we were to sit down and, and put check marks next to all the ideas by Christian Latanzio that I like or don't like, this one would have a check mark. And the reason for it is this. I don't think Ashley, Wed's, Ashley Westwood's ever going to be the best defender in the in the world. I don't think he's ever going to be uh, Derek Jones, right? He's never going to be that guy who sits on top of your defense and you go, well, nobody's getting through there. But what he is is someone who just understands the field and sees the field in a way that I think Christian Latanzio and Charlotte FC want the next generation to see. And this is what I mean by paving the way. I think they want Ashley Westwood to fail. And I don't mean that in like they want Charlotte FC to lose. I think they want, I think they trust the technical level of Ashley Westwood so much that they want him to go find the speed bumps in the road. Right. I, it would not surprise me if Christian Latanzio sat down with Ashley Westwood and said, go mess it up. Try the passes. If they don't work, fine. Spread the balls out wide. Keep the ball close. Try and dribble that guy. Nutmeg somebody. I don't care. Go try it. Find out what works. Find out what doesn't. I believe you have the technical skill to play this role and then the technical skill to be a leader to whoever comes in and does it next. Right. I believe genuinely I've met Ashley Westwood in person that he is not only capable of doing this, even if it's not his best ability, but that he's the type of leader, the type of, of man, of human that will will give all of this knowledge in almost uh, another coach on the field sort of way to whoever plays that position next. I see Ashley Westwood and what he's doing as the paving stones towards where our six should be playing in the future. And every time I see him have a game like this, where he's really able to step up, where he's able to be effective in, in transition, where he's a part of the defense, where he also gets to get involved very late on in the field. Uh, obviously, his goal was quite early, but he is late into the box on that run. When I see him click in all three directions... All I can think of is this guy's paving the way. This guy is going to find out what works and he's going to find out what doesn't. And if we're lucky, the guy who comes next is going to be handed a golden script of how to make this work by somebody who, who went through the ringer for it. Tell me what you think and, you know, this perspective on Ashley from you, you and what's your reaction to it? I think to start, I think it's important to mention that 
I've said a lot of times before that I don't think this is the best way of playing him. I think mm-hmm. his best role is as an eight. I think that that's been borne out by the times that we've seen him in that role, where whoever we've had at the six at the time has has had a good game, whether that be you know mostly Derek Jones when he's played well and he's given an Ashley Westwood to to have the opportunity to do number eight things. I think that's the best version of Ashley Westwood we've seen. But having said that, this is a situation where you don't have an embarrassment of riches to have the best at every position because you can upgrade at other places. This is where I get that you're great there, but when it's better for the team, what's better overall is to have you in this role. And that's how Ashley Westwood has ended up playing this sixth role for the most part. And it definitely comes from a place of coaches' trust. Coach, you know, fans are always battling for younger players to be in the team, be given opportunities. And the counter to that is that coaches live on a much more short-term peril. So they always want the players that they can trust. Does play Does Christian Does Christian Latanzio live on a short-term peril though? That's that's for that's that's a bigger question. Yeah, with with the fans. <laughs> I yeah, feel like he probably fans. does with the with the higher ups. Maybe that again is a is a conversation for for another time. But uh, yeah, I, I think with Ashley Westwood in the six, the the issues that I had with it as a projection when the season started, the areas where I think he would have struggled and, and would have borne out, the style that we've landed on, I think negate that. We've talked about the fact that we have a deep build up that wants to bring in pressure and we play over the top of it and take advantage of that space. From an attacking perspective, that means that you have loads of space for good playmakers to take advantage of, and good playmakers, good wingers, always want space to play in. That's a plus. But from a rest defence perspective, the fact that you already have players deep and they'd be moving up with the pressure rather than being on the back foot a little bit, ready for pressure to go over their heads, that helps them massively which was one of the major things that I had an issue with Ashley Westwood being the 6-4, the idea of transitional um, situations not being a strong suit of his. That has kind of negated this, and this is something that's got stronger and stronger as we've gone. The fact that we're playing a little bit deeper and he's coming up to our attacking, uh, you know, when we're parked in the opposition half, he's coming up to that rather than having to play on the back foot and be wary of going back in the other direction. The other thing is, which is a slight departure from this, is that we mentioned that in this game we played about as about as four four two e as we have ever done with Federsky mm-hmm. playing up front with uh, Enzo Capetti, mainly focusing on that element of it, the front two element of it, the fact that it was Federsky and Capetti playing with each other, playing off each other, linking up for at least the first twenty minutes of this game. That was a major case, and throughout the game, it kind of it, it came and it went as we went one up one nil up, and the you know the game state changed a little bit. So one of the factors off the off of that is that not only do you have a front two, but now you have a four four two style pair of midfielders, which Ashley Westwood spent about six years in for Burnley. Now he's not at his athletic peak. He's not you know, that guy who's going to be able to be as box as box to box as you hoped that he would be. But although MLS games are transitional, generally, they play at a little bit of a slower pace. There are lot there are longer stoppages uh, stoppages. Well, I can't pronounce that word. Is that right? Stoppages? Or sure, does that just I'll take sound stoppages. Wrong to me? I was gonna sound, say that's fine to me. 
it sounds wrong coming out, I, but I do think I, it's I, right. <laughs> I, I assure you, if we've both gone off the deep end, someone will let us know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we go. There so, we go. Yeah. I, Although I've I was a, just. Yeah, I've yeah, got go, a ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. To jump in here to you because I think that you've touched on something I didn't think about, and that's we've sort of compressed the team higher up the field when we are pressing. And we don't have those open spaces in our lines as much as we used to. And some might say that that's a little bit of throwing caution to the wind, which, to be fair, if this team wanted to make playoffs, it needed to do. But I also feel like we've done a relatively good job of baiting people to not play through the center. We're baiting them to go over the top. We're leaving the space in behind, and we're basically just saying Adilson Melanda is going to win that duel every time. And to be fair... A lot of the times, Adilson Melanda is winning that duel. Now, maybe you could argue we're putting too much pressure on Adilson, yet, you know, or on Andrew Privet, who is not necessarily a, a backwards duel specialist. Uh, you know, you might say that's not right, but I do think that there has been some some way the team plays that encourages people not to necessarily play play five aside ball around Ashley Westwood. A hundred percent. That's spot on condensing of the lines we play with a high line there was a moment in this game where the height where where Capetti was who's our forward line and our defensive line were about 20 25 yards away from each other now we play with that high line because we trust Melanda and to an extent now uh Jera Erinen to be able to cover that space when the ball is played over the top we trust that the narrowness of our structure defensively will force the ball out wide and we'll be able to restructure from those positions. But also it takes a massive burden of how much space the midfield is going to have to cover. When you condense play like that, what risks do you take? We've gone through them, the over the top stuff, playing out wide stuff. We're comfortable with that because of our personnel. What are the positives of it? You will never be pulled, not never pulled out of structure, but it is very hard to pull a tight knit group out of structure because everyone is very close to each other and from an on-field perspective, being tight together, yeah, that helps because, you know, you, it's a hard unit to break. But also, let's just get down to the bare bones of this. The communication between players is benefited massively by playing a tight unit. Instead of shout, instead of Ashley Westwood shouting... They can hear each other, yeah. Exactly, they can hear each other. They can hear each other. <laughs> instead of Ashley Westwood shouting something to uh, Brant Bronico spread out on the other side of the centre circle 20 yards away, he can kind of casually say it to him no he's never going to because every football player is going to shout everything to make sure it's heard but everything is definitely heard yep. like everything that we do now because of this it's almost the hidden benefit it's the secret sauce if we play like this we are allowing and this goes back to what i said a little bit on the post react our midfield generals who are very vocal and have leadership qualities to be able to communicate very well with everyone else so even if you don't think that this is the optimum structure for us to be in we're going to do it really well because our communication will be top. So whether you agree with the philosophy or whether you don't, sometimes I do with certain stuff, sometimes I don't, best believe that there's no excuse for it not to be executed perfectly the way it's set up. That's a really interesting point. And it does almost feel like we've taken a 4-4-2 low block and just made it a 4-4-2 pressing structure. Like it's almost that, you referenced it as like 20 yards of distance, 25 yards of distance, and that's not a lot. Um, and yeah. if you'd like to go back and watch this one yourself, you can see it very clearly because Chicago left the football lines on on the pitch. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, to be fair, we have had to, Charlotte FC has had to play with football lines on the pitch as well. But I did think it was funny that they were like half washed off, not 
not fully washed <laughs> off, but but also like clearly visible. Uh, I know that you wanted to talk Brant Bronico uh, in this one. You want to talk on Brant? Yeah, uh, this is more because because what we've touched on there is an element of you know in possession build up and out of possession, low block, mid block, whatever it may be. And it, it kind of varies, in my opinion. It goes mid-block in their early build-up, and then we get in our low block, which I suppose is most four four twos. but it's still worth pointing out. I feel like I'm clarifying it. The Brand Bronico thing that I wanted to touch on is more in terms of when we have the ball quite high and in the opposition half. And we've talked about Brand Bronico a lot, and it's mainly been in these areas, mm-hmm. those areas where you're hoping for someone to have a little bit of quality because he's been playing higher up. And theoretically, with a four four two, you don't need as much as that, as much of that, when you have him in that role compared to what he was doing before. Especially when that gives Ashley Westwood a little bit of freedom more to get forward, uh, and Brant Bronico covering behind. But it's almost a little bit of an epiphany, which is overstating it, but something that I came to realize in this game, and then challenging it against our previous games. And it's it's almost changed a little bit from last season with Brant Bronico because he was much better this last season than he was this season, is that he is very adamant at playing the way he's facing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in certain situations, but in certain areas where we need a little bit more from him, I think that is the key point where I'd start as to why he's not giving us what we need him to give us. Because when you say Brant Bronico, I don't think he's creative enough in these areas in the final third. He's a fan favourite and you get a little bit of pushback from that of people saying, you know, what about this? What about this goal that he scored in this situation when he got forward and and took on a man and and, and managed to score? What about this situation where he got to the byline? And, and chipped it inside and Svidersky scores his header, which uh, which only happened recently. People will bring these examples up and say, okay, but what about this? What about that? How can you say this when this has happened? So the, the most reasonable argument I think that you can counter that with is that when you're playing in the final third, okay, he's dribbled through those situations. He's made a ship at the byline when the opportunity has presented, presented itself. But in those tight areas, you need a quick scan over your shoulder as to whether you have a two-on-one or a 2v2. You need to a quick scan over the other shoulder to see if that winger has got a fullback playing 10 yards off or five yards off. And you need a little scan behind to see, okay, how are they playing the striker? Is the centre-back going to jump to the ball if I receive it in this area 25 yards from goal? Or is he going to stay back? Because if he comes up to me, I can play it through to the striker. If he stay back, I can bring it forward to him and then maybe slide that ball in. With Brant Bronico, it's very safe. And that's fine in certain areas. But in these areas where you need a little bit more, especially for a team that doesn't have many automatized attacking situations and you're banking on the creativity of individualism, this is something which I think specifically he doesn't have in his arsenal. And it's less of an issue if we carry on with this style. But I wonder if this was a one-game plan and we're going back to the way that we used to play going forward and that issue will persist. So like I say, I wanted to bring up Brant Bronico for that reason, because I think because we've talked about him so much the last few weeks and we've been looking for the reasons why specifically we don't think it clicks, that's kind of what I've landed on as the reason. So it's something to look out for when you watch this going forward. And it's also something to look out for in terms of how we play going forward, because if we go back to what we were doing before, 
I think that that issue will become more and more obvious as teams pick up on it. You know, it, it kind of it, it follows in similar suit of my mind when I said I feel like he's got better off ball vision than on ball vision because uh, you're right. He does kind of play in the direction he's already in uh, or whatever his first movement is when he receives the ball because he's actually quite good at the half turn. Um, which is something that caught my eye early on, whatever his first directional movement is, is kind of where it goes. So if he receives it on the half turn and it towards a corner flag, he's going to that corner flag. And I, I, I appreciate the call out because it makes a lot of sense. I don't know that I necessarily have, have seen it, but it will be something that I will be looking for. And, you know, as far as that midfield goes, who knows exactly what we're going to see against Inter Messi slash Inter Miami. But one thing that hopefully not, well, we're not going to see too much more of is the penalty squabbles. We had another penalty in this one. Carol Swiderski makes history. The first Charlotte FC player ever to score in three goals in, or score three games in a row. Uh, I almost said in three goals in a row, which he technically did not do. No, he did not do that. Uh, I had to think about which order the goals came in. But he makes uh, history by scoring in three games in a row. And uh, he makes three penalty goals. He gets another one in this one. It's another very well-taken penalty. It's Enzo again who wins the penalty. It is a clear penalty. I don't think we have to go over that again. Uh, the other guy sticks his leg out and trips Enzo in the box. I have no idea why. I would call it a moment of madness and nothing more. Sort of like what happened with uh, Breck Diagra. A while back, and the one that happened with Nathan Byrne, like, it's an obvious penalty. I guess you have to ask them, you know, their family members ask that player at dinner why they decided to do it. Nobody else is ever going to know. Steps up, beautiful shot by Carroll, puts it in. What I liked is I did not see the penalty squabble, right? Now, obviously, they both kind of pick up the ball, all that stuff. But one game before against Toronto, there was a fight over who was taking penalties. And this time, there was a brief little chat. Carroll took the penalty. Everybody kept on playing. And I like that because I like that there was feistiness. I like the, the fight. I like the people who want to step up and score and want to, to increase their tally, back themselves to make it. But once you're a professional... I don't mind you showing that. I do mind if you run it into the ground. I do mind if you make it the headline news that you're unhappy because the person who should be getting the penalties is getting the penalties. I have to assume that Enzo Capetti was told when he came into this team that Carol Schroderski, if he was on the field, was the penalty taker. You have to imagine he was told that. And if he wasn't told that, if he was told coming in that he was going to be the penalty taker no matter what, then maybe the guy has an argument. But I cannot imagine that's what happened. So uh, I liked that I saw the fight. I liked that I saw a couple uh, players who both backed themselves. And more than that, I like that it got worked out in the dressing room and didn't continue on the pitch in the second game. Uh, Ewan, thoughts on this on the second goal, on how well Carroll took it, on the penalty squabbles, anything? I mean, you mentioned there that this this stuff is sorted out before the season. You know that that he's the penalty taker, and that's how it's going to be. Really, you'd hope that this is sorted out specifically before, you know, not before every game, but it, it's sorted out when it could become an issue, and it isn't something that's changed since. So, take for example the fact that Capetti 
scored a goal a little while ago, a penalty. He scored a penalty mm-hmm. a little while ago from uh, from the penalty that he won. So and it was well taken, and it was a well taken penalty. Mm-hmm. And Karol Svodersky in the penalty shootout that we had in the cup game, he missed his penalty. So mm-hmm. off the back of that, you would have to address the situation, and from there, Latanzio has to make a decision. So after that game, going into the next game, you would say, okay, when these two players are both on the field, this person's the penalty taker. In this case, he would say it's Svodersky. And then when you get into a lineup situation where both of these players start, because at that time Capetti was coming off the bench, you clarify in the pregame. When you do all the stuff, you, your last pregame meetings, everything like that, okay. Svodersky's a penalty taker. Don't want any issues on the field about this. Don't want any jeopardy coming into his mind. He's a penalty taker. He gets the ball. He takes it. So you have to wonder, in the same way that you mentioned there, a little bit of a moment of madness from the players giving away penalties in certain situations, a little bit of a moment of madness uh, potentially from Capetti, thinking, okay, you know, I, I, we've had this situation where it's been clarified, but I could really use a goal right now. And then yeah. with the second one against Toronto, it's like, okay, we're 1-0 up. You took the first one. Can I, I, again, I could really use a goal right now. Can I take this? And it's absolutely right that Svodersky keeps to his steel and takes his penalties because he would have been appointed as the taker because you see Ashley Westwood, the captain, bringing Capetti away from it. It's been decided that he's the penalty taker. So I I don't like the fact that that jeopardy is brought to the pitch. And I'm hopeful, I'm almost assuming it because it's such standard practice that this would have been clarified off the field in the meetings and that Capetti was just, you know, feeling a little bit, a certain type of way about the fact that he hasn't, he maybe hasn't scored in a little while and his goal scoring record overall is a little bit underwhelming for what he'd want, that he is asking on the field for this to happen and him be given the penalty. And I point out really quick something that you said, and I want to just throw my weight behind because I can, I have a microphone, no one can stop me. Uh, one of the things that I didn't mention earlier about Ashley Westwood, and we should, is I think he's really grown as a captain. Um, I think he has started to to do the job of a captain, of calming down Capetti, of you know talking to the referees, of being the one who pulls people away and says, I'm the captain, I have the armband, let me handle this. You go pout in a corner if you need to pout. Uh, and I don't think he necessarily started at Charlotte FC with that down pat, and I think he's picked it up quite well. Um, I, I bring that up because some teams, it's the captain's decision who takes the, the penalty and some teams penalty takers are decided by the coach, you know, in this situation, do you think it was Latanzio or do you think it was, uh, it was done by the captain and Ashley Westwood? I think that the coach should select the penalty taker. I'm not sure who is actually selecting it, but I I would absolutely hope that the head coach is selecting who the penalty taker is because that decision should be above board, so to speak. If To use your club, for example, Arsenal, you mm-hmm. play against Bournemouth and you're 3-0 up and you give a penalty to Kai Havertz, who, like we mentioned with Capetti, could use a goal. 3-0 up after 70 minutes, you let him take a penalty. Okay, contextualise that, different circumstances. We're talking about penalties to go one nil up, and penalties to go two nil up. Yeah, not the head. Not coach, the game is done. Penalties. Exactly, exactly. I think the head coach should absolutely be the person making those decisions because unless you have a 
anomaly of a captain who has an incredibly high standing. And I know that Westwood is a really popular person. I love him. And he does have a high standing. I'm talking about like... uh, An unassailable position. Yeah, an almost, you know, de facto coaching staff, you know, reverence amongst the players. I think that that's an unfair decision to put on a member of the dressing room because that can create its own issues of favoritism. I think a head coach should always make that decision, not only because it creates absolute certainty of who should take it, because if Westwood's deciding that, Capetti can go right there and talk to him. What he's not going to do is go 50 yards away from the box and talk to Latanzio, because guess what? Svidersky's going to have the ball in his hands. The ref's going to blow the whistle. He's going to take it. Yep. So I think it creates absolute certainty and also just removes an a, a, a bit of a grey area in terms of favouritism within the team. I just think, and in terms of the taker, if a head coach gives you responsibility to take the penalty, that gives you the confidence that you're the right man to take it. So we've got to think of it from that perspective as well. So obviously, I don't know who decides who takes the penalties, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's a head coach thing. And this was just a little, this was an example of Capetti, as we've seen at times this season, you know, acting with emotion before before his his better judgment so so what you don't know you and is it's actually random people in the crowd who choose who take the penalties uh, <laughs> it, it, people don't know this but every every single game they pick a random seat number and then they just listen to who that person is screaming for when the penalty gets called and then they just give the ball to that person the so, person who was it's the person who's crowned before every game it was frank Wright <laughs> who, who picked the other week <laughs> oh man uh, that is definitely not how penalties work. Please don't quote me out of context in that one. Uh, let's let's go ahead and uh, say that obviously we're glad it's put away. We're glad we win this game. It puts us in position to you know really make a run at playoffs. We have to run, in my opinion, these two games through through the EQ, through the equalizer. And if you look at this, I, I think that we should and you should enjoy the wins. Uh, Part of being a fan is the joy, right? You should be able to enjoy and take away the great moments from those matches. But after a little while in the cold light day, we have to assess them for what they are. We've had two wins. We've come up five goals to zero in those two matches. And that can sway opinions. I have had uh, some people who wish not to be named approach approach me in the media box and say things like the worst result against Toronto is us winning 7-0. And the reason for that is if Charlotte FC goes and absolutely slaughters the worst team in the league. And, you know, I told this to you, you and privately earlier, we beat a terrible team. Toronto looked awful in that match. And we should love, we should enjoy the fact that we did. But Charlotte FC beat them 3-0. The crown legacy might have beaten them 4-0. That is not a good team. When we go and, and assess these matches, what I think cannot happen is they get looked at and go, well, you can see we picked it up at the end. Everything's fine. They just need more time. This team needs help. This team needs changes. This team needs personnel change. This team needs to go get better. It needs to be looking at how its next season will not be a continuation of what it is. It will be an improvement on where it is. And I don't think we can let this run of two games, and even if we go on and beat Miami twice, 
I don't think we can let that knowledge out of our sight because the, the recency bias was lots of winning. I'm, I love the wins, and I will never sit here and say I don't want Charlotte FC to win because I partied just as hard as anybody when they won. But I do think we have to contextualize. We played a, a essentially 1.0 XG versus 1.0 XG game against Chicago. That game on numbers was essentially a draw. I think we set up in a pretty good way. I think we had some good, intelligent tactics that played well. I think players had individually very good performances. But let's be honest, Ashley Westwood hit a shot that hits that actually works once in a season to, to put us ahead in that game. And then, in order to go 2-0 up, they had a completely brainless mistake in the box to give us a penalty. Outside of that penalty we made something like 0.2 XG, which is not a lot. I'll go ahead and tell you the shot that Ashley Westwood scores in that game is a 0.04 XG. Uh, for those of you doing the math out there, that's not great odds of scoring a goal. So, so this team has problems. This team needs to be able to attack more efficiently. You and I, I'm going to ask you this, and you don't know the answer to this. How many games this season in the MLS do you think Charlotte has managed to post an XG number of 2.0 or higher, meaning they would be expected to score two goals in the whole season? And just to add context to this, 32 games played so far, isn't it? Yep. And I'm including penalties. This is not, not non-penalty XG. This is penalties included. So I'll go with... Split it about a third and say 10. Oh, wow. You would be way too high. <laughs> uh, the number of games that Charlotte FC has successfully put up a 0.2 XG or, or a 2.0 XG or higher in 32 games played is two. Two games. One of them was against Toronto, where we put up like a 3.4 XG. <laughs> there has been one other game this season. It was Atlanta away that we put up 2.3 XG. That's it. This team needs help. This team needs the ability to go and put danger on other people's goals. And uh, like I said, I want to celebrate what's going on, but I also don't want to let us, I also don't want the, the bigger picture to go away. Thoughts on what I'm saying here, Ewan, when you step back and look at it from 30,000 feet, what are you looking at with this team? Besides, obviously, let's go win the playoffs. Well, firstly, I'm glad that I had the guess that I did because it it, it brought the shock value of the uh, of the answer. <laughs> it, if, I, if I'd have been like three, then maybe it wouldn't have hit as, <laughs> as well. But I, I, I'm glad that I, that I went with what I did. And, and, and listen, we... It was, oh. it was an, it was an honest prediction. Uh, that's yeah. what I thought it would be. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I was obviously I'm shocked right now to hear that it's so low. Um, but when you contextualize it with the issues that I've had with this team, the things that I've said about this team, you dilute it as I am now. And you think, yeah, I'm trying to pick out the game where, you know, the, the third game that we would have had two or over 2.0 XG or the fourth game or, or the 10 games that I subconsciously pulled out that uh, that somehow we managed this in um yeah we're we're a team that dominates the ball massively but doesn't create a lot with it and that's an issue and just to uh 
obviously you mentioned the fact that the two games that we've just played, we've won, we've won handily, well done, but they're not the best opposition. It feeds into that that if you if you want to keep going with that example, just to you know maybe put the positive spin on it, that we lost handily to Cincinnati and they're the best team in MLS. And mm-hmm. we had a couple of results, one against Philadelphia at home, a really good team where we drew mm-hmm. and one, a really uh, a good team in, in New England who are really, really good at home, who we lost to due to a late goal. And you could say off the back of that, that those are results where we were as competitive as you'd hope us to be. And I'd also hope that we're able to beat these two teams handily. Mm-hmm. And we did. So you can almost say that with that all contextualized together, we are right at the spot where people would expect us to be, where us as fans feel like we are. So there's almost a little bit of comfort in that, in that we are exactly where we feel like we are. And from a, like you mentioned, 30,000 feet perspective of that, that makes it easier to make the long-term decisions because we are exactly who we feel we are. And whether you think that that is a good thing because the trajectory is going up, whether you think that that's a bad thing because you think that this squad can have more got out of it, especially in terms of attack and creation, which is one of the areas where I feel massive improvements could be made. That's how you feel. But the main point is that we are exactly who we thought we were. And you can make your conclusions off the back of that as to where we should go from here. So I just want to just really quickly put this into context because having uh, that, that sort of 10 mark is actually kind of where you want to be in a season. You want to be able to put up roughly 10 games of 2.0 expected XG or better, and you're going to do pretty well. Just to just to give this some some across the board more understandable value, uh, if you look, you know, the exact same place, uh, it looks like Atlanta has put up about nine, nine, ten games. And if you look at somebody like... Um, Cincinnati, they put up about 12 games of 2.0 XG. Now, those are two very good teams, right? And they both have very high goal tallies. Charlotte FC has a ways to go, and I don't want to beat this any further than it's been hit because I think we've been on it maybe a little bit too long now. This team needs more help. This team needs to develop. It it doesn't need to stop. Making the playoffs in ninth is not the end goal of this team, and it should not be regarded as such. So... Any final thoughts, 30 seconds on this, Ewan? Um, I think another thing to note, because obviously we're talking XG and things like that, um, is that it's it's not exactly my area of specialty. I'm 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 a you know a game film watcher and and when it comes to stats, sometimes I feel like I'm in, in a clockwork orange with my eyelids peeled apart uh, viewing uh, viewing some of this stat stuff. But I, so I may not be the most reliable uh, person to have commented on it. But at the same time, I do think that I am experienced enough with it and know generally enough because I am interested in XG in a long-term way to know how often a team where Charlotte are should be putting up at least two XG in a game. Could be wrong, could be right. Mm-hmm. And we're just obviously way off. And for as much as I think that there were some good things that we put together in build-up in the Chicago game, as much as I think there were some good things that we put together in build-up in the Toronto game, ultimately our build-up ideas have always been fairly creative and that sometimes they've come off, sometimes they haven't. But yep. it's the final third 
where we need some good coaching to be able to break down teams because teams right now are happy to stand in front of their goal against us, knowing that we don't have the ability to get through them. And they're right to make that bet. Yep. So uh, I'm going to start to wrap it up there. This is going to be a little bit of a short one, but what we're going to be doing is we're waiting a little bit. Well, I say it's going to be a bit of a short one. I think it's going to be right on our normal time. We are waiting a little bit to find out whether or not we are going to be playing inner Miami or whether we are going to be playing inner Messi. And then we are going to do the appropriate uh, look ahead to that team, hopefully this weekend. And we will get that out to you depending on whatever we have. It might be an episode where we talk like half the episode is if, if Messi's playing and half the episode is, is if Messi's not playing. So we'll, we will be keeping an eye on the news and we hope you will be as well. Uh, I think we're going to go ahead and start to wrap it up. Ewan, thank you so much. Yeah, always a pleasure, man. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you. Uh, and glad to have you, the dear listeners. As always, if you have decided to spend your time with us, we love you. Thank you so much. And that's it. We will talk to you again on Saturday or Sunday, depending on whether or not we play Inter-Messi or Inter-Miami. Goodbye. Queen City Podcast Network.com. 